This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 6. Solid Information. A Fossil Community. Curious Ways and Customs. Jesuit Humbuggery. Fantastic Pilgrimizing. Origin of the Russ Pavement. Squaring Accounts with the Fossils. At Sea Again. I think the Azores must be very little known in America. Out of our whole ship's company there was not a solitary individual who knew anything whatever about them. Some of the party, well read concerning most other lands, had no other information about the Azores than that they were a group of nine or ten small islands far out in the Atlantic, something more than halfway between New York and Gibraltar. That was all. These considerations move me to put in a paragraph of dry facts, just here. The community is eminently Portuguese, that is to say, it is slow, poor, shiftless, sleepy, and lazy. There is a civil governor, appointed by the King of Portugal, and also a military governor, who can assume supreme control and suspend the civil government at his pleasure. The islands contain a population of about two hundred thousand, almost entirely Portuguese. Everything is stayed and settled, for the country was one hundred years old when Columbus discovered America. The principal crop is corn, and they raise it and grind it just as their great-great-great-grandfathers did. They plough with a board slightly shod with iron. Their trifling little harrows are drawn by men and women. Small windmills grind the corn, ten bushels a day and there is one assistant superintendent to feed the mill, and a general superintendent to stand by and keep him from going to sleep. When the wind changes, they hitch on some donkeys, and actually turn the whole upper half of the mill around, until the sails are in proper position, instead of fixing the concern so that the sails could be moved instead of the mill. Oxen tread the wheat from the ear, after the fashion prevalent in the time of Methuselah. There is not a wheelbarrow in the land. They carry everything on their heads, or on donkeys, or in a wicker-bodied cart, whose wheels are solid blocks of wood, and whose axles turn with the wheel. There is not a modern plough in the islands, or a threshing-machine. All attempts to introduce them have failed. The good Catholic Portuguese crossed himself, and prayed God to shield him from all blasphemous desire to know more than his father did before him. The climate is mild. They never have snow or ice, and I saw no chimneys in the town. The donkeys and the men, women, and children of a family all eat and sleep in the same room, and are unclean, are ravaged by vermin, and are truly happy. The people lie and cheat the stranger, and are desperately ignorant, and have hardly any reverence for their dead. The latter trait shows how little better they are than the donkeys they eat and sleep with. The only well-dressed Portuguese in the camp are the half a dozen well-to-do families, the Jesuit priests, and the soldiers of the little garrison. The wages of a laborer are twenty to twenty-four cents a day, and those of a good mechanic about twice as much. They count it in rays at a thousand to the dollar, and this makes them rich and contented. Fine grapes used to grow in the islands, and an excellent wine was made and exported but a disease killed all the vines fifteen years ago, and since that time no wine has been made. The islands being wholly of volcanic origin, the soil is necessarily very rich. 
Nearly every foot of ground is under cultivation, and two or three crops a year of each article are produced, but nothing is exported save a few oranges, chiefly to England. Nobody comes here, and nobody goes away. News is a thing unknown in Fayal. A thirst for it is a passion equally unknown. A Portuguese of average intelligence inquired if our civil war was over. Because, he said, somebody had told him it was, or at least it ran in his mind that somebody had told him something like that. And when a passenger gave an officer of the garrison copies of the Tribune, the Herald, and Times, he was surprised to find later news in them from Lisbon than he had just received by the little monthly steamer. He was told that it came by cable. He said he knew they had tried to lay a cable ten years ago, but it had been in his mind somehow that they hadn't succeeded. It is in communities like this that Jesuit humbuggery flourishes. We visited a Jesuit cathedral nearly two hundred years old, and found in it a piece of the veritable cross upon which our Saviour was crucified. It was polished and hard, and in as excellent a state of preservation as if the dread tragedy on Calvary had occurred yesterday instead of eighteen centuries ago. But these confiding people believe in that piece of wood unhesitatingly. In a chapel of the cathedral is an altar with facings of solid silver, at least they call it so, and I think myself it would go a couple of hundred to the ton, to speak from the fashion of the silver miners, and before it is kept forever burning a small lamp. A devout lady who died left money and contracted for unlimited masses for the repose of her soul, and also stipulated that this lamp should be kept lighted always, day and night. She did all this before she died, you understand. It is a very small lamp and a very dim one, and it could not work her much damage, I think, if it went out altogether. The great altar of the cathedral, and also three or four minor ones, are a perfect mass of gilt gimcracks and gingerbread, and they have a swarm of rusty, dusty, battered apostles standing around the filigree work some on one leg, and some with one eye out, but a gamey look in the other, and some with two or three fingers gone, and some with not enough nose left to blow, all of them crippled and discouraged, and fitter subjects for the hospital than the cathedral. The walls of the chancel are of porcelain, all pictured over with figures of almost life-size, very elegantly wrought, and dressed in the fanciful costumes of two centuries ago. The design was a history of something or somebody, but none of us were learned enough to read the story. The old father, reposing under a stone close by, dated 1686, might have told us if he could have risen, but he didn't. As we came down through the town we encountered a squad of little donkeys ready saddled for use. The saddles were peculiar, to say the least. They consisted of a sort of saw-buck with a small mattress on it and this furniture covered about half the donkey. There were no stirrups, but really such supports were not needed. To use such a saddle was the next thing to riding a dinner-table. There was ample support clear out to one's knee-joints. A pack of ragged Portuguese muleteers crowded round us, offering their beasts at half a dollar an hour, more rascality to the stranger, for the market-price is sixteen cents. Half a dozen of us mounted the ungainly affairs, and submitted to the indignity of making a ridiculous spectacle of ourselves through the principal streets of a town of ten thousand inhabitants. We started. It was not a trot, a gallop, or a canter, but a stampede, 
and made up of all possible or conceivable gates. No spurs were necessary. There was a muleteer to every donkey, and a dozen volunteers beside, and they banged the donkeys with their goad-sticks, and pricked them with their spikes, and shouted something that sounded like, Sekiya! and kept up a din and a racket that was worse than bedlam itself. These rascals were all on foot, but no matter, they were always up to time. They can outrun and outlast a donkey. Altogether ours was a lively and picturesque procession, and drew crowded audiences to the balconies, wherever we went. Blucher could do nothing at all with his donkey. The beast scampered zigzag across the road, and the others ran into him. He scraped Blucher against carts and the corners of houses. The road was fenced in with high stone walls, and the donkey gave him a polishing first on one side and then on the other, but never once took the middle. He finally came to the house he was born in, and darted into the parlor, scraping Blucher off at the doorway. After remounting, Blucher said to the muleteer, "'Now that's enough, you know. You go slow hereafter.' But the fellow knew no English, and did not understand, so he simply said, Sekiya! and the donkey was off again like a shot. He turned a corner suddenly, and Blucher went over his head. And, to speak truly, every mule stumbled over the two, and the whole cavalcade was piled up in a heap. No harm done. A fall from one of those donkeys is of little more consequence than rolling off a sofa. The donkeys all stood still after the catastrophe, and waited for their dismembered saddles to be patched up and put on by the noisy muleteers. Blucher was pretty angry, and wanted to swear, but every time he opened his mouth his animal did so also, and let off a series of brays that drowned all other sounds. It was fun scurrying around the breezy hills and through the beautiful canyons. There was that rare thing, novelty, about it. It was a fresh, new, exhilarating sensation, this donkey-riding, and worth a hundred worn and threadbare home pleasures. The roads were a wonder, and well they might be. Here was an island with only a handful of people in it, twenty-five thousand, and yet such fine roads do not exist in the United States outside of Central Park. Everywhere you go, in any direction, you find either a hard, smooth, level thoroughfare, just sprinkled with black lava sand, and bordered with little gutters, neatly paved with small, smooth pebbles, or compactly paved ones like Broadway. They talk much of the Russ pavement in New York, and call it a new invention yet here they have been using it in this remote little isle of the sea for two hundred years. Every street in Horta is handsomely paved with the heavy rust blocks, and the surface is neat and true as a floor, not marred by holes like Broadway. And every road is fenced in by tall, solid lava walls, which will last a thousand years in this land where frost is unknown. They are very thick and are often plastered and whitewashed and capped with projecting slabs of cut stone. Trees from gardens above hang their swaying tendrils down, and contrast their bright green with the whitewash or black lava of the walls, and make them beautiful. The trees and vines stretch across these narrow roadways sometimes, and so shut out the sun that you seem to be riding through a tunnel. The pavements, the roads, and the bridges are all government work. The bridges are of a single span, a single arch, of cut stone, without a support, and paved on top with flags of lava and ornamental pebble-work. Everywhere are walls, 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 and all of them tasteful and handsome, and eternally substantial. And everywhere are those marvellous pavements, so neat, so smooth, and so indestructible. 
and if ever roads and streets and the outsides of houses were perfectly free from any sign or semblance of dirt or dust or mud or uncleanliness of any kind it is horta it is fayal the lower classes of the people in their persons and their domiciles are not clean but there it stops the town and the island are miracles of cleanliness we arrived home again finally after a ten-mile excursion and the irrepressible muleteers scampered at our heels through the main street goading the donkeys shouting the everlasting sequia and singing john brown's body in ruinous english when we were dismounted and it came to settling the shouting and jawing and swearing and quarrelling among the muleteers and with us was nearly deafening one fellow would demand a dollar an hour for the use of his donkey another claimed half a dollar for pricking him up another a quarter for helping in that service and about fourteen guides presented bills for showing us the way through the town and its environs and every vagrant of them was more vociferous and more vehement and more frantic in gestures than his neighbor we paid one guide and paid for one muleteer to each donkey the mountains on some of the islands are very high we sailed along the shore of the island of pico under a stately green pyramid that rose up with one unbroken sweep from our very feet to an altitude of seven thousand six hundred and thirteen feet and thrust its summit above the white clouds like an island adrift in a fog we got plenty of fresh oranges lemons figs apricots etc in these azores of course but i will desist i am not here to write patent office reports we are on our way to Gibraltar, and shall reach there five or six days out from the Azores. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 A Tempest at Night Spain and Africa on Exhibition Greeting a Majestic Stranger The Pillars of Hercules The Rock of Gibraltar Tiresome Repetition The Queen's Chair Serenity Conquered Curiosities of the Secret Caverns personnel of Gibraltar, some odd characters, a private frolic in Africa, bearding a Moorish garrison without loss of life, vanity rebuked, disembarking in the empire of Morocco, a week of buffeting a tempestuous and relentless sea, a week of seasickness and deserted cabins, of lonely quarter-decks drenched with spray, spray so ambitious that it even coated the smokestacks thick with a white crust of salt to their very tops, a week of shivering in the shelter of the lifeboats and deck-houses by day, and blowing suffocating clouds and boisterously performing at dominoes in the smoking-room at night. And the last night of the seven was the stormiest of all. There was no thunder, no noise but the pounding bows of the ship, the keen whistling of the gale through the cordage, and the rush of the seething waters. But the vessel climbed aloft as if she would climb to heaven, then paused an instant that seemed a century, and plunged headlong down again, as from a precipice. The sheeted sprays drenched the decks like rain. The blackness of darkness was everywhere. At long intervals a flash of lightning clove it with a quivering line of fire that revealed a heaving world of water where was nothing before, kindled the dusky cordage to glittering silver, and lit up the faces of the men with a ghastly luster. Fear drove many on deck that were used to avoiding the night winds and the spray. Some thought the vessel could not live through the night, and it seemed less dreadful to stand out in the midst of the wild tempest and see the peril that threatened than to be shut up in the sepulchral cabins under the dim lamps and imagine the horrors that were abroad on the ocean. 
and once out, once where they could see the ship struggling in the strong grasp of the storm, once where they could hear the shriek of the winds, and face the driving spray, and look out upon the majestic picture the lightnings disclosed, they were prisoners to a fierce fascination they could not resist, and so remained. It was a wild night, and a very, very long one. Everybody was sent scampering to the deck at seven o'clock this lovely morning of the 13th of June, with the glad news that land was in sight. It was a rare thing, and a joyful, to see all the ship's family abroad once more, albeit the happiness that sat upon every countenance could only partly conceal the ravages which that long siege of storms had wrought there. But dull eyes soon sparkled with pleasure, pallid cheeks flushed again, and frames weakened by sickness gathered new life from the quickening influences of the bright, fresh morning. Yea, and from still more potent influence, the worn castaways were to see the blessed land again, and to see it was to bring back that motherland that was in all their thoughts. Within the hour we were fairly within the Straits of Gibraltar, the tall, yellow-splotched hills of Africa on our right, with their bases veiled in the blue haze, and their summits swathed in clouds, the same being according to Scripture, which says that clouds and darkness are over the land. The words were spoken of this particular portion of Africa, I believe. On our left were the granite-ribbed domes of old Spain. The strait is only thirteen miles wide in its narrowest part. At short intervals along the Spanish shore were quaint-looking old stone towers, Moorish, we thought, but learned better afterwards. In former times the Morocco rascals used to coast along the Spanish main in their boats, till a safe opportunity seemed to present itself, and then dart in, and capture a Spanish village, and carry off all the pretty women they could find. It was a pleasant business, and was very popular. The Spaniards built these watch-towers on the hills, to enable them to keep a sharper lookout on the Moroccan speculators. The picture, on the other hand, was very beautiful to eyes weary of the changeless sea, and by and by the ship's company grew wonderfully cheerful. But while we stood admiring the cloud-capped peaks and lowlands robed in misty gloom, a finer picture burst upon us, and chained every eye like a magnet a stately ship, with canvas piled on canvas, till she was one towering mass of bellying sail. She came speeding over the sea like a great bird. Africa and Spain were forgotten. All homage was for the beautiful stranger. While everybody gazed, she swept superbly by, and flung the stars and stripes to the breeze. Quicker than thought, hats and handkerchiefs flashed in the air, and a cheer went up. She was beautiful before. She was radiant now. Many a one on our decks knew, then, for the first time, how tame a sight his country's flag is at home, compared to what it is in a foreign land. To see it is to see a vision of home itself and all its idols, and feel a thrill that would stir a very river of sluggish blood. We were approaching the famed Pillars of Hercules, and already the African one, Apes Hill, a grand old mountain with summit streaked with granite ledges, was in sight. The other, the great rock of Gibraltar, was yet to come. The ancients considered the pillars of Hercules the head of navigation and the end of the world. The information the ancients didn't have was very voluminous. Even the prophets wrote book after book and epistle after epistle, yet never once hinted at the existence of a great continent on our side of the water, yet they must have known it was there, I should think. 
In a few moments a lonely and enormous mass of rock, standing seemingly in the center of the wide strait and apparently washed on all sides by the sea, swung magnificently into view, and we needed no tedious traveled parrot to tell us it was Gibraltar. There could not be two rocks like that in one kingdom. The rock of Gibraltar is about a mile and a half long, I should say, by fourteen hundred to fifteen hundred feet high, and a quarter of a mile wide at its base. One side and one end of it come about as straight up out of the sea as the side of a house. The other end is irregular, and the other side is a steep slant which an army would find very difficult to climb. At the foot of this slant is the walled town of Gibraltar, or rather the town occupies part of the slant. Everywhere, on hillside, in the precipice, by the sea, on the heights, everywhere you choose to look, Gibraltar is clad with masonry and bristling with guns. It makes a striking and lively picture from whatsoever point you contemplate it. It is pushed out into the sea on the end of a flat, narrow strip of land, and is suggestive of a gob of mud on the end of a shingle. A few hundred yards of this flat ground at its base belongs to the English, and then, extending across the strip from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean, a distance of a quarter of a mile, comes the neutral ground, a space two or three hundred yards wide, which is free to both parties. "'Are you going through Spain to Paris?' That question was bandied about the ship day and night from Fayol to Gibraltar, and I thought I never could get so tired of hearing any one combination of words again, or more tired of answering, I don't know. At the last moment six or seven had sufficient decision of character to make up their minds to go, and did go, and I felt a sense of relief at once. It was forever too late now, and I could make up my mind at my leisure not to go. I must have a prodigious quantity of mind. It takes me as much as a week sometimes to make it up. But behold how annoyances repeat themselves. We had no sooner gotten rid of the Spain distress than the Gibraltar guide started another, a tiresome repetition of a legend that had nothing very astonishing about it, even in the first place. That high hill yonder is called the Queen's Chair. It is because one of the queens of Spain placed her chair there when the French and the Spanish troops were besieging Gibraltar, and said she would never move from the spot till the English flag was lowered from the fortresses. If the English hadn't been gallant enough to lower the flag for a few hours one day, she'd have had to break her oath or die up there. We rode on asses and mules up the steep, narrow streets, and entered the subterranean galleries the English have blasted out in the rock. These galleries are like spacious railway tunnels, and at short intervals in them great guns frown out upon the sea and town through portholes five or six hundred feet above the ocean. There is a mile or so of this subterranean work, and it must have cost a vast deal of money and labor. The gallery guns command the peninsula and the harbors of both oceans, but they might as well not be there, I should think, for an army could hardly climb the perpendicular wall of the rock anyhow. Those lofty portholes afford superb views of the sea, though. At one place, where a jutting crag was hollowed out into a great chamber whose furniture was huge cannon, and whose windows were portholes, a glimpse was caught of a hill not far away, and a soldier said, that high hill yonder is called the Queen's Chair. It is because a Queen of Spain placed her chair there once when the French and Spanish troops were besieging Gibraltar, and said she would never move from the spot till the English flag was lowered from the fortresses. If the English hadn't been gallant enough to lower the flag for a few hours one day, 
she'd have had to break her oath or die up there. On the topmost pinnacle of Gibraltar we halted a good while, and no doubt the mules were tired. They had a right to be. The military road was good, but rather steep, and there was a good deal of it. The view from the narrow ledge was magnificent. From it vessels seeming like the tiniest little toy boats were turned into noble ships by the telescopes, and other vessels that were fifty miles away, and even sixty, they said, and invisible to the naked eye, could be clearly distinguished through those same telescopes. Below, on one side, we looked down upon an endless mass of batteries, and on the other straight down to the sea. While I was resting ever so comfortably on a rampart, and cooling my baking head in the delicious breeze, an officious guide belonging to another party came up and said, "'Señor, that high hill yonder is called the Queen's Chair. Sir, I am a helpless orphan in a foreign land. Have pity on me. Don't. Now don't inflict that most infernal old legend on me any more to-day.' There. I had used strong language after promising I would never do so again. But the provocation was more than human nature could bear. If you had been bored so, when you had the noble panorama of Spain and Africa and the blue Mediterranean spread abroad at your feet, and wanted to gaze and enjoy and surfeit yourself in its beauty in silence, you might have even burst into stronger language than I did. Gibraltar has stood several protracted sieges, one of them of nearly four years' duration. It failed, and the English only captured it by stratagem. The wonder is that anybody should ever dream of trying so impossible a project as taking it by assault, and yet it has been tried more than once. The Moors held the place twelve hundred years ago, and a staunch old castle of theirs of that date still frowns from the middle of the town, with moss-grown battlements and sides well scarred by shots fired in battles and sieges that are forgotten now. A secret chamber in the rock behind it was discovered some time ago, which contained a sword of exquisite workmanship, and some quaint old armor of a fashion that antiquaries are not acquainted with, though it is supposed to be Roman. Roman armor and Roman relics of various kinds have been found in a cave in the sea extremity of Gibraltar. History says Rome held this part of the country about the Christian era, and these things seem to confirm the statement. In that cave also are found human bones crusted with a very thick stony coating, and wise men have ventured to say that those men not only lived before the flood, but as much as ten thousand years before it. It may be true. It looks reasonable enough, but as long as those parties can't vote any more, the matter can be of no great public interest. In this cave, likewise, are found skeletons and fossils of animals that exist in every part of Africa yet within memory and tradition have never existed in any portion of Spain save this lone peak of Gibraltar. So the theory is that the channel between Gibraltar and Africa was once dry land, and that the low, neutral neck between Gibraltar and the Spanish hills behind it was once ocean, and, of course, that these African animals, being over at Gibraltar, after rock perhaps, there's plenty there, got closed out when the great change occurred. The hills in Africa across the channel are full of apes, and there are now and always have been apes on the rock of Gibraltar, but not elsewhere in Spain. The subject is an interesting one. There is an English garrison at Gibraltar of six thousand or seven thousand men, and so uniforms of flaming red are plenty, and red and blue and undress costumes of snowy white, and also the queer uniform of the bare-kneed Highlander and one sees soft-eyed Spanish girls from San Roque, 
and veiled Moorish beauties, I suppose they are beauties, from Tarifa, and turban-sashed and trousered Moorish merchants from Fez, and long-robed, bare-legged, ragged Mohammedan vagabonds from Tetuan and Tangier, some brown, some yellow, and some as black as virgin ink, and Jews from all around, in gabardine, skull-cap, and slippers, just as they are in pictures and theatres, and just as they were three thousand years ago, no doubt. You can easily understand that a tribe—somehow our pilgrims suggest that expression, because they march in a straggling procession through these foreign places with such an Indian-like air of complacency and independence upon them—a tribe like ours, made up from fifteen or sixteen states of the Union, found enough to stare at in this shifting panorama of fashion to-day. Speaking of our pilgrims reminds me that we have one or two people among us who are sometimes an annoyance. However, I do not count the oracle in that list. I will explain that the oracle is an innocent old ass who eats for four, and looks wiser than the whole Academy of France would have any right to look, and never uses a one-syllable word when he can think of a longer one and never by any possible chance knows the meaning of any long word he uses, or ever gets it in the right place. Yet he will serenely venture an opinion on the most abstruse subject, and back it up complacently with quotations from authors who never existed, and finally, when cornered, will slide to the other side of the question, say he has been there all the time, and come back at you with your own spoken arguments, only with the big words all tangled, and play them in your very teeth as original with himself. He reads a chapter in the guide-books, mixes the facts all up, with his bad memory, and then goes off to inflict the whole mess on somebody as wisdom which has been festering in his brain for years, and which he gathered in college from erudite authors who are now dead and out of print. This morning at breakfast he pointed out of the window, and said, "'Do you see that there hill out there on that African coast? It's one of them pillows of Hercules. I should say, uh, and there's the ultimate one alongside of it. The ultimate one, that is a good word, but the pillars are not both on the same side of the strait. I saw he had been deceived by a carelessly written sentence in the guide-book. Well, it ain't for you to say, nor for me. Some authors states it that way, and some states it different. Old Gibbons don't say nothing about it, just shirks it complete. Gibbons always done that when he got stuck. But there is Rollington. What does he say? Why, he says that they was both on the same side, and Trinculian, and Sobaster, and Syracuse, and Langamorphal—' Oh, that will do. That's enough. If you have got your hand in for inventing authors and testimony, I have nothing more to say. Let them be on the same side. We don't mind the oracle. We rather like him. We can tolerate the oracle very easily, but we have a poet and a good-natured enterprising idiot on board, and they do distress the company. The one gives copies of his verses to consuls, commanders, hotel-keepers, Arabs, Dutch, to anybody, in fact, who will submit to a grievous infliction most kindly meant. His poetry is all very well on shipboard, notwithstanding when he wrote an ode to the ocean in a storm in one half-hour and an apostrophe to the rooster in the waist of the ship in the next. The transition was considered to be rather abrupt, but when he sends an invoice of rhymes to the governor of Fayal, and another to the commander-in-chief and other dignitaries in Gibraltar, with the compliments of the laureate of the ship, it is not popular with the passengers. 
The other personage I have mentioned is young and green, and not bright, not learned, and not wise. He will be, though, some day, if he recollects the answers to all his questions. He is known about the ship as the interrogation point, and this, by constant use, has become shortened to interrogation. He has distinguished himself twice already. In Fayol they pointed out a hill and told him it was eight hundred feet high and one thousand one hundred feet long, and they told him there was a tunnel two thousand feet long and one thousand feet high running through the hill from end to end. He believed it. He repeated it to everybody, discussed it and read it from his notes. Finally he took a useful hint from this remark which a thoughtful old pilgrim made. Well, yes, it is a little remarkable. Singular tunnel altogether. Stands up out of the top of the hill about two hundred feet, and one end of it sticks out of the hill about nine hundred. Here in Gibraltar he corners these educated British officers and badgers them with his braggadocio about America and the wonders she can perform. He told one of them a couple of our gunboats could come here and knock Gibraltar into the Mediterranean Sea. At this present moment, Half a dozen of us are taking a private pleasure excursion of our own devising. We form rather more than half the list of white passengers on board a small steamer bound for the venerable Moorish town of Tangier, Africa. Nothing could be more absolutely certain than that we are enjoying ourselves. One cannot do otherwise who speeds over these sparkling waters and breathes the soft atmosphere of this sunny land. Care cannot assail us here. We are out of its jurisdiction. We even steamed recklessly by the frowning fortress of Malabat, a stronghold of the Emperor of Morocco, without a twinge of fear. The whole garrison turned out under arms and assumed a threatening attitude, yet still we did not fear. The entire garrison marched and countermarched within the rampart, in full view, yet notwithstanding even this, we never flinched. I suppose we really do not know what fear is. I inquired the name of the garrison of the fortress of Malabat, and they said it was Mehemet Ali ben Sankom. I said it would be a good idea to get some more garrisons to help him. But they said no, he had nothing to do but hold a place, and he was competent to do that. Had done it two years already. That was evidence which one could not well refute. There is nothing like reputation. Every now and then my glove purchase in Gibraltar last night intrudes itself upon me. Dan and the ship's surgeon and I had been up to the great square listening to the music of the fine military bands, and contemplating English and Spanish female loveliness and fashion, and at nine o'clock were on our way to the theatre, when we met the general, the judge, the commodore, the colonel, and the commissioner of the United States of America to Europe, Asia, and Africa, who had been to the clubhouse to register their several titles and impoverish the bill of fare and they told us to go over to the little variety store near the Hall of Justice and buy some kid gloves. They said they were elegant and very moderate in price. It seemed a stylish thing to go to the theatre in kid gloves, and we acted upon the hint. A very handsome young lady in the store offered me a pair of blue gloves. I did not want blue, but she said they would look very pretty on a hand like mine. The remark touched me tenderly. I glanced furtively at my hand and somehow it did seem rather a comely member. I tried a glove on my left, and blushed a little. Manifestly the size was too small for me, but I felt gratified when she said, "'Oh, it is just right!' Yet I knew it was no such thing. I tugged at it diligently, but it was discouraging work. She said, 
Ah, I see you are accustomed to wearing kid gloves, but some gentlemen are so awkward about putting them on. It was the last compliment I had expected. I only understand putting on the buckskin article perfectly. I made another effort, and tore the glove from the base of the thumb into the palm of the hand, and tried to hide the rent. She kept up her compliments, and I kept up my determination to deserve them or die. Ah, you have had experience, a rip down the back of the hand. They are just right for you. Your hand is very small. If they tear you, need not pay for them. A rent across the middle. I can always tell when a gentleman understands putting on kid gloves. There is a grace about it that only comes with long practice. The whole afterguard of the glove fetched away, as the sailors say. The fabric parted across the knuckles, and nothing was left but a melancholy ruin. I was too much flustered to make an exposure and throw the merchandise on the angel's hands. I was hot, vexed, confused, but still happy. But I hated the other boys for taking such an absorbing interest in the proceedings. I wished they were in Jericho. I felt exquisitely mean when I said cheerfully, "'This one does very well. It fits elegantly. I like a glove that fits. No, oh, never mind, ma'am, I never mind. I'll put the other on in the street. It is warm here.' It was warm. It was the warmest place I ever was in. I paid the bill, and as I passed out with a fascinating bow, I thought I detected a light in the woman's eye that was gently ironical. And when I looked back from the street, and she was laughing all to herself about something or other, I said to myself, with withering sarcasm, "'Oh, certainly. You know how to put on kid-gloves, don't you? A self-complacent ass, ready to be flattered out of your senses by every petticoat that chooses to take the trouble to do it!' The silence of the boys annoyed me. Finally Dan said musingly, "'Some gentlemen don't know how to put on kid-gloves at all, but some do.' And the doctor said, to the moon, I thought, but it is always easy to tell when a gentleman is used to putting on kid gloves. Dan soliloquized after a pause. Ah, yes, there is a grace about it that only comes with long, very long practice. Yes, indeed, I've noticed that when a man hauls on a kid glove like he was dragging a cat out of an ash hole by the tail, he understands putting on kid gloves. He's had ex-boys enough of a thing's enough. You think you are very smart, I suppose, but I don't. And if you go and tell any of those old gossips in the ship about this thing, I'll never forgive you for it. That's all." They let me alone, then, for the time being. We always let each other alone in time to prevent ill feelings from spoiling a joke. But they had bought gloves, too, as I did. We threw all the purchases away together this morning. They were coarse, unsubstantial, freckled all over with broad yellow splotches, and could neither stand wear nor public exhibition. We had entertained an angel unawares, but we did not take her in. She did that for us. Tangier! A tribe of stalwart moors are wading into the sea to carry us ashore on their backs from the small boats. End of chapter 7